Hi, my name is Jose Luis Mendoza, and I am the co-host of Hola Cultura's new bilingual podcast on DocuLife, with support from the DC Oral History Collaborative. The United States education system often fails immigrants. Many people who immigrate to the U.S. don't speak English, and thus confront a language barrier they must scale. According to the Pew Research Center, as of 2021, only 37% of Latino immigrants spoke proficient English. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, in the U.S. public school system, the number of students enrolled as English learners rose from 4.5 million in 2010 to 5.1 million students in 2019, an increase of more than 13%. Since Congress passed the Equal Educational Opportunities Act in 1974, public schools are required to provide students who do not speak English with classes in their first language while they learn English as a second language. But the language barrier can still set immigrants at an academic disadvantage. This often puts the burden on them, even as children, to teach themselves outside of a classroom. In this episode, we spoke with Hersin Quinteros, who enjoyed an early childhood surrounded by his matriarchal family in El Salvador before immigrating to the U.S. in 2005. After being enrolled in school in the D.C. area, Hersin quickly learned that as a non-English speaker, catching up with his English-speaking peers would be difficult. His English as a second language class allowed him to feel a greater sense of community among other Spanish-speaking students and teachers. But he still felt ostracized for being different. Hersin eventually found other ways to learn through his community. The TV show PBS Kids and his friends in the neighborhood became helpful resources for him during his time in school. Today, Hersin is an organizer with United We Dream, where he carries out local and national advocacy and works to pass policies that protect and support the immigrant community. Most recently, he helped pass the Sanctuary Value Act, which stops D.C. government agencies from working with ICE. Nationally, Hersin continues to fight for a pathway to citizenship and supports high school and college students to create safe and welcoming spaces in their schools across the DMV. Here's our interview with Hersin, conducted by a former fellow at Ola Cultura, Delia Beristain Noriega, back in September of 2021. Can you tell us your full name, date of birth? So my name is Herson Quinteros. My date of birth is December 22nd, 1994. And I grew up in a Salvador's and in a part of a state called Usulután. And do you remember the schools that you went to, like the names, who were your teachers and your friends? The school when I was there was called Héroe de Chapultepec. And that was the main school that I went from pre-K all the way to fourth grade, actually. And what was your social interactions like, whether it was your friends or family members growing up? So in my house and my family, I grew up with myself, my mom and my grandma. That was the main household. And then, of course, a few blocks down, my cousins. So I grew up with them a lot. They always used to say us we used to be dressed as triplets because we were almost the same age. But... My older cousin was the one who taught me everything when I was going to school, and he was the one responsible for us when we were playing around. And in my school, I always hang out with many people. I was always social. I always been a social person. I grew up hanging out with only certain people, not with everyone. I love sports, and I never actually hang out with people who played sports at that point. I hang out more with people who were always like playing around, playing tag, stuff like that. I remember that. It was rare when I played soccer, and which was something that came up in my rest of my life that was the main thing. But when I was little, I didn't do that. I always hanged out with females and other kids. 
And what about your parents? Like, what was that relationship like? So my mom and my dad separated when I was younger, before even I was four, actually. And so my mom was the one who always took care of me, the one who provided for the household, the one who always came in and who worked ever since she was 17. So she was the one provided for the household in our family and the one who has always been working. And I remember that growing up with her, she was the one who always came in. And even if she had been tired, she would play with me or spend time with us no matter what. And my grandma would be the one who would provide for like the house, doing everything and else inside. So that, like, I never grew up with my dad. And what was that like for you growing up? Was it weird for you in any way to have your mom but not your dad? What was that experience like growing up? I didn't even think about it, I think, at that point, because I always grew up with my mom. I rarely saw my dad. Like, I think it was, like, once a month that I saw him or so often. I didn't see him that often because he was another city away. So he was, like, two hours away from our household. And it was way different with, like, I didn't even think about it. What were some of the values that your mom taught you growing up? Always be kind, always be nice. She always taught me to... Always be like a hardworking person. Seeing her, that always brought into me. She was always a kind person. I remember one of the biggest memories that I have was us actually having a party and inviting the neighborhood. Of course, you know, as a little kid, you always expect gifts. And my mom used to invite this neighbor who was poor. They had like about three children or more. I can't remember how many children they had, but they were poor and... I think I said something to my mom about gifts. And my mom was like, it's not about the gifts. It's about spending time with people and being kind to them. And I remember ever since then, I have never actually cared about gifts. But I do care about like spending time with people, enjoying family, enjoying friends, and always doing that. And always being kind, of course. <laughs> yeah. And then can you tell us a little bit more about what your mom did, what your grandma did? So my grandma was a stay-home person. She did work, like, sometimes she would go out and sell things. If it wasn't tortillas, it would be fruits. And I remember just from her, how I used to see her, I used to also do the same inside my school. So sometimes when I didn't have any money to buy food or anything in school, I would take oranges or anything and sell them. And the kids would buy them for me. And then I would just use that money to go to the store and buy things for myself. So it was like that. But... My mom used to be the person who, the system here is different, but in El Salvador, you have somebody who like times the buses. They keep track of everything that happens, where the bus is going, where is it coming, at what time it left. So she used to be the transportation person for the system in the state. So she used to be in the middle of the state and doing that main highway. And that was her first job, I think. And when did it become a conversation or even just an idea that you were going to come here? Or how was that decision made, I guess? For me, the first person that came to the United States was my mom. After losing her job, she wanted to find a better opportunity, so she came here. And my uncle's ex-wife was the one who told her about the United States, about D.C. and everything, and helped her come here. That's how she learned about the United States. Also, she had heard about the United States through one of my uncle's my grandma's brother because he had been here before but I don't remember all the story but yeah I remember that but when she came here she was here and I stayed with my grandma and with my grandma the thing was that 
after a year she died. So the decision was made that if I wanted to come in here and reunite with my mom. And so that was the decision I made and I just wanted to come here and reunite with her. Of course, it was just, she gave me a call and she asked me a simple question, but at that time I didn't even think about it. I just wanted to be with her. And she actually asked me if I wanted to have a birthday party or come here. And of course I chose to be here with her because I hadn't seen her in a long time. And has she ever talked to you about her journey coming here? Yeah, we talked about her journey, the struggle that she faced. In El Salvador, there was an earthquake around 2001, 2000s, and she was affected by that. My great-grandma had lived with us, and she tried to rescue her, and the whole house came down on them. And so when she was traveling here, when she came here, she actually had an incident where she had the back pain again, and that's why she was always talks about her story in a way like that, that the whole suffering and the back pain and coming here She tells me about that always because her journey was different than mine. Hers took about a month or two to come here, while mine took a little shorter as a little kid, of course. What was that year like for you? You said you were apart for about a year? Yeah, it was different. I I was with my grandma, of course, but I didn't get to see my mom. My mom started sending more money to support us. I remember that for the first time we got cable. In our house, we got a cell phone where I actually every day we would be able to talk to each other. And that was one of the things that I always did. My grandma was the one who always took care of us ever since I was little. So I grew up with my grandma, so it wasn't like a big difference there. But it was that feeling of, you know, missing your mother. It was way different. And I remember that when I came here, I was missing her so much. And the first thing I did, I hugged her. So... When you had that conversation over the phone about, like, yes, I do want to come here and be with you, what happened after that? So my godfather and his wife, they decided they were coming to the United States, too. And I came with them. I couldn't leave the country without actually getting my father's permission. So I had to communicate with my father, get all this. So I immigrated to Honduras, where we met a coyote. And the coyote actually took us from Honduras to Guatemala, Belize, and Mexico. And yeah, that was the beginning of the journey with everything. And how long did that process take? So the whole thing was about, it was supposed to take 15 days. I think it took a little longer because I remember that in the middle of it, I got sick and there was other things that happened in the journey. But yeah, there was time that I lost that I can't remember that much. But yeah, there was up around like 20 days or 25. Wow. And what are some of the things that were crossing your mind when this was happening? I felt like it was just us traveling. I remember that I traveled so many times. But I do remember missing like leaving everyone behind the night before leaving. I didn't tell anyone that I left. So I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell anyone because in a way there was a superstition. And the some of them that if you told anyone, you would not make the journey. But I remember that I never told anyone, only my close family, so my cousins and my aunt, and of course my dad. But then other than that, nobody I said goodbye to. And once I came here, I remember being in Mexico. I got sick one time and I got this high fever and I, 
a dream came to me. And I was just remembering that struggle of like, oh, I can travel, like go back and come back. Like having superpowers and teleporting and back and forth and thinking about whether I wanted to stay there and be there. I had a vivid dream of me being in El Salvador instead of actually being in Mexico. But thinking about that and I had like this struggle of deciding still during that time. And during this journey, what are some of the things that you remember seeing? Did you meet any people along the way or? So yeah, I met other people. I was always with my godfather and his wife, but I met another lady who always supported my godfather's wife with me. So we always hang out, talk during the journey. I remember that one of the biggest things was crossing in Mexico when it was raining. So that was one of the biggest impact because I remember that we had to across this swamp area and on the other side we had to change and all of that but it was a journey that it was just with many other folks and you had to like always be with your family not with other folks because you couldn't be with other folks always stuck with the person that you were assigned which at this was my godfather's wife okay. that makes sense <laughs> and do you remember the day when you arrived here and where did you arrive so I remember that I went to Rio Grande. I crossed Rio Grande and when I arrived to the United States, the first thing I actually saw was Border Patrol. And I remember actually we went in a different route to actually avoid them. And I remember being lost in Texas for a little while and wandering around. Later on, I remember that I was helped in the mechanic area. We went to a mechanic. And the mechanic was like, oh, this person can help you. And I remember staying at a household. And then after that, it was these people I met and they were really nice. I remember we stayed with them for about, I think, a few days, five or so. And they were really welcoming. They provided like food and everything. I remember that I went to, I think it was around memorials or something because we went to visit a military grave and we went to provide a respect there and then after a while I think my godfather's wife made a decision and we were in front of Walmart and she was making a call and then a white van appeared and it was actually CBP coming and arresting us taking us to like this cell and what happened next I remember that they put me inside the van and they took me to the cell right it was just like the size of this room. It was like a little tiny wall that separated you and the bench from the bathroom. And you were put there. I was put there with my godfather's wife. I was fingerprinted. And then I remember they tried to take the picture of me, but I couldn't because I was crying too much. And so my godfather's wife came in and picked me up and actually took the picture with me. After a while, they took me to a back room. And I remember being questioned like, what was my name? How old was I? Who I with? Did I know my parents? Why was I here? Stuff like just kept asking me questions. And somehow they got in communication with my mom. And I remember like they put my mom in speaker and then they talk. I don't remember what we talked about, but then after that, they actually let us go during that time. And my mom's coworker went and picked us up because she was a green card holder. Yeah. So at that point, they let you all go? They let us go, and we were supposed to have a court date later on. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then where did you go after that? I met up with my mom's co-worker at a 
hotel, and then from there we took a flight to Mer, to Baltimore. And then, what was that moment like seeing her after all this time? Yeah, so I came to WI, and then I went to her apartment. Not my mom, but the coworker, and my mom came in the afternoon to pick me up. And I remember seeing her with her white shirt and her black pants, and a little hat with the letter M because she used to work at McDonald's, and. I just remember hugging her and talking to her for the first time and just just crying together because of him. It's good that you're reunited. Yeah. And what were those first few days or even months like for you here or getting acclimated to this new environment? So it was like a new, like exploring. I remember exploring downtown, going to Arlington because my mom and dad used to love Virginia. So we used to go all around Virginia, buying stuff, buying clothes, signing up for classes. I remember that I had to take an English language exam to actually be placed in a grade. And yeah, just going through those, getting ready to go to school because classes had started and I came around October or so. So I was getting ready to get to school. And yeah, I ended up going to Bruce Morrow in DC and yeah. That was the first time I started to get back into school and everything else. And what year was that? 2005. And what was Bruce Monroe like? So this was before they had the new building they have right now. It used to be in Irving Street in Georgia. And it was this huge school. It was not like, my school was huge in like size, but this had different levels. And so I was just like, wow, the school is big. We had to wear uniform and I, like, I was just like the yellow and everything, green parents, I remember walking in and I just remember that one of the things that I did was getting the fifth grade line. My best friend now actually, still my best friend. She told me recently that when I got into the line, she's like, everyone wanted to tell me that I was in the wrong line because I was so short and they thought I was a second grader. And so they were like, we wanted to tell you, but we didn't tell you. And so it was something that she told me that happened. But yeah, but it was new experience. I remember having you know, self classes, learning with other students who were just just like me, who had just came. But it was a school that also like it was not just English. It was also students who spoke Spanish. My teacher spoke Spanish too, and it was new for me and a new experience. Did you find it to be like a welcoming place or like what kind of place? It was welcoming. I love the teachers. The teachers always were welcoming to me. I remember one of the biggest teachers that was welcoming to me was Miss Burke. She was a teacher in the school and she was always teaching me English, trying to get me to like learn it, speak it and do all those and read it actually. And outside of school, in what ways did you find yourself learning English or trying to learn English? Outside school, I actually, PBS Kids was one of the things. I don't know if you know this, but PBS Kids is one of the biggest things that I think people used to learn English. And I remember watching TV shows. Arthur was one of the biggest shows that I watched. And that's how I started to pick up words. Also during that time, there was Halloween. And the house my mom lived in, the lady had two kids. One was older than me and the other was younger than me. And they taught me words too. They helped me, but I remember going to Halloween and they teaching me trick or treat too. And so it's like teaching me words little by little. But that's how I actually learned English. 
And speaking of the house where you guys lived, can you describe it a little bit more? Like, where was it located? So what was it like? I remember it was this house. Oh, my mom rented like a room, a tiny room in there. And I remember just the bed fit there and we just were sleeping there together. And yeah, that was our room. We had a TV. But I always like could go out and play with the other kids. I, we could go anywhere in the household. I remember that I always spent time playing, either going downstairs in the living room playing, or we went outside in the backyard to play because they used to have like a, a garage, but they didn't use it for like the car. They just had a garage and we played there together, all three of us. Going back to your new school, can you tell us more about the demographics of the school when you were attending? So the principal was Dr. Palacio, which she was from El Salvador too. It was a lot of Salvadorians at the school. There was Mexicans. There was a lot of African-Americans in the school too. So it was a diverse school. And I just remember like, there was uh, white teachers. And I think I only had like two teachers that I knew who were not white. But other than that, it was diverse in some of the teachers because I think the lower grades were more diverse than the upper grades. I think the teachers I interacted with were white, but yeah, it was it was a little diverse, not too much. I know we talk a lot about diversity now, right? But growing up, like, was that a familiar concept in any way? Or like, how did you start to get more acquainted with that? I think, you know, growing up in El Salvador, you have other folks who are not the skin tone that you have, but I don't like you don't actually have like African American or all those different titles. I remember that we had one classmate who was darker than me, and he was one of my closest friends, and we never actually had those titles, right? But when I came here, that was the title, you know, blacks, Latinos, whites, and I think growing up, I didn't think about it too much, but I think adults do think about it a lot. And I remember that I grew up with. Both. I hanged out with some of my friends who were black in my school and some of them were Latinos. More when I got to learn English, it was closer than more. But I think diversity growing up was different. I usually hanged out with Latinos because I didn't know how to actually talk in English, communicate. And then as I grew up more, I started to learn more about the culture and learn more about different folks. So it was this thing. But I think there always was this... Also, in adults, the anti-blackness, I think it was. There was an anti-blackness. Uh, I remember that one thing that always, always talked about in our culture was that blacks are evil or like they do bad things. And I think I heard it in multiple adults' conversations, but I never actually thought about that when I was little. I just, I was a kid. I talked to people and, but this was something different. When I started to grow up, I started to reflect about that and how adults used to say that things no and yeah and i ask about that because i mean yeah you're right when you're growing up like you're not necessarily thinking about that it's really a learned behavior mm -hmm. so you finished up elementary school at bruce monroe or did they have other like did they have middle school as well no 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 <laughs> so i finished fifth grade then i went to sixth grade i actually spent most of my days in school so I didn't take a break. I actually took fifth grade summer and summer school, and then I went to sixth grade right away. And I remember that most of my day was spent in school. So from 8 a.m. all the way to like 6 p.m., I spent it there in school. So 
I never took a break. And then I learned English by sixth grade. I actually started to like be more involved in classes, especially the mainstream classes, what they call them, where like everyone who's no matter what, they don't have ESL classes. And then after that, I went to public charter school, which was my middle school. And it was uptown in Missouri Avenue. It's still there, actually. And that was where I took seventh and eighth grade. And that's where I like learned other different perspectives of immigrants because that was more diverse immigrants. We had more folks from Ethiopia. I forget what other countries we had, but yeah, it was more diverse folks that were immigrants from other areas. Oh, Philippines was another one and more Africans immigrants. And I know you mentioned before that you've always been very social. Did that change at all when you came here? How were you in school with making new friends? I was social in a way differently. I think during elementary middle school, I was more quiet due to the fact that I was bullied. But I was mostly social with females. And the only time I talked to more males would be when we would play sports. Soccer came my passion to actually meet other folks, play with males. So it was more like me playing soccer and going out to championships and playing. That was how I did that. But mostly more social was with females. And I think throughout my whole life, you can see that. But in middle school, I got more social in eighth grade. And I think ninth grade, I got just, it was more, more social than I thought. But during those years, because of my English, because of everything, that was happening during the time, the bullying and everything. I, I kind of was by myself or only certain friends. It wasn't like before that I used to talk to anyone and talk to friends. And since you brought it up, do you mind telling us a little bit more about the bullying and how you dealt with that? So growing up, you always get people get bullied. And I got bullied in elementary. I got picked on. I remember why. I mean, I'm with the shortest one, but you know, I remember in middle school, I got bullied by this guy who always picked on me. And I remember running around the hallways, getting tripped on, and the kid was always picking on me. But yeah, during that time, I think he stopped after I stood up in eighth grade. But other than that, I think the bullying stopped more when I was in high school due to the fact that high school was more closer. It was like a small group of classmates. But yeah, I think middle school and elementary school was just getting picked on during that time. I can't say what it was, but yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you um, get through that, right? Did you um, talk to anybody? No, I always kept a positive thing. I remember during eighth grade, something that I used to do is go to home and just fall asleep in the couch. And my mom started seeing that I kept doing that all the time and I never actually did anything else other than that just came out out of like school and just sat in the couch but I think in eighth grade I started to get more involved I started to play more sports soccer has always been a way to get me out of like get my anger and all those things that was happening my like self-care it's always been that and I think that was always a thing for me. And I think during eighth grade, seventh grade, even seventh grade, I played a little bit of soccer. And what was the transition like from elementary to middle school? It was different because I had my friends in elementary school, but I didn't get to see them in middle school. I, I missed all my old friends. I didn't have, I had to like get new friends, talk to new friends. 
and having that in those schools in elementary school you hanged out with the same group in middle school you didn't you had to like you were with the same group but in middle school you were like put in ESL classes so most of your classes would be ESL so like you have science classes with an ESL teacher you have history classes with an ESL teacher not with the other students or with any so it would be like all of the immigrant students together always together no matter what so then we kind of like never interacted with the main students mainstream students and so it was this way of always I didn't interact with the mainstream students I interacted mostly with the ESL and we were close and we grew up together all of them my friends were there I mean I still talk to some of them and now they we talk about it like we used to do trips there too our teachers took us to field trips to the monuments and all of that so it was the way different environment for us you mentioned that that you mostly were in that group right with the ESL students and didn't really get to interact much with the other kids did you think of anything of that at the time or what do you think of it now at the time I didn't think about it too much I just remember that I was like okay so I'm with this group we used to go to English together and all that but it, I didn't think about it at all now I think it was really weird because you would get all these teachers yeah they would be more helpful but it created this for me the the bully that I, I had was a mainstream student not actually a ESL student so I didn't have classes with that kid only one class I think we took together and those would be science courses And yeah, that's how I would interact, like, you know, or P, we would have together with mainstream students. But it was just different, you know. You wouldn't ever actually see those groups. But now thinking back, it was just different. It did help in a way, but at the same time, it didn't help because now it created tension. Thinking back, it's just, it was the way it was created. And it was really, when in eighth grade, I just felt that it was better that way because we we had created like our own group I remember I had still have contact with those friends because we grew up in college like helped each other with schoolwork and stuff like that well, were you involved in any activities like in school I know you mentioned that you were still playing soccer were you doing anything else that really interested you in middle school I think I didn't play any sports I know that I did started to pick up chess so I started to play chess more I think other than that, I wouldn't say after school activities, I didn't do anything. I mostly like stayed for like homework assignments just to do homework. I did spend more time like going to my mom's shop. So I would travel to my mom's shop and be there after school, do an assignment myself or like just spending time there while I waited for her to get out. It was something like I learned a lot about just being in her job and stuff like that. And what did you think of her new job? I think I didn't ask you about that. Also, her job was in the McDonald's deal, but she worked at the Air Space Museum. There was a McDonald's inside the Air Space Museum. And I remember just being there and learning about the museum and learning all the exhibits. So, like I used to learn about the forces of flight, all of those things. I used to spend time with the security guards. I used to like learn everything, just go with the people who do the tours and learn about that people who had exhibits and I like learn about their exhibits and I started to get to know them and I, like I actually grew up in the airspace same actually a lot. What was that like? I mean spending a lot of time there. You got to learn a lot. You got to meet a lot of new people so 
I remember I got to meet a few people who were college students during that time and they would explain like the forces of flight and I just, just used to come always to be there. They used to tell me about airplanes, but little by little they helped me learn. And so they would be like, do you want to explain this? And I would explain it to the people. And then like learning about astronauts, it was just a cool experience learning about it and being like, the closer you got to people, you got to meet uh, some security guards and I got to access to the IMAX, which was the movie theater scene there. And so yeah, I learned more about movies and like, so you just, just met a lot of cool people and learned a lot. So I guess that brings me to my next question, right? I think some of us have very different definitions of what community looks like back mm-hmm. home. And so where did you find community here? Community here, I think I found it mostly with close friends, I think. They would be the ones who would be like, we could go play in the playgrounds or hang out together. And building throughout my whole phases of like middle school and elementary school, I think I built different friends um, groups. And that's how I built community. I think even when I was in middle school, I like I said, I hang out with a lot of like explainers and I, they were the like explainer program for the Air Space Museum. And I used to hang out with them and I built community there, talking to them, learning about them. And then even when I got here, I started to, like in high school, I started to learn more about activism and organizing. And so I got into building that kind of community. But it's always been like community through soccer or sports that I built. And then I think growing up, that was my community. It was always close friends and stuff like that. And then what high school did you go to? Capital City Public Charter School. And what was high school like for you? It was actually, so it was a brand new high school. We were the first graduating class. So we were first actually here in CBS. It was way different than my big school that I used to go to that had like different floors and everything. And you had like 10 minutes to go from one side to another. And here you had like 10 minutes, but you still had like a small area to walk in. And the classes were smaller. Usually, like, you had, like, 20 students. Here, you had, like, 10 or 15 students. It wasn't that big. And you had more one-on-one. The teacher, like, talked to you. They have, like, more interactive classes. So, like, you know, you had, like, a different way of learning classes. And you had more community building. I think for advisories, I think in middle school, even there, you had, like, I remember building community in my advisory with like our members but in high school it was more like us interacting more talking more like how are you feeling how are you and seeing my teachers taking more like the teachers care more because I remember one of my classmates he was immigrant but he worked at night and sometimes he would fall asleep or doing but the teachers would be calling him and trying to get him to come to class and do, but he, they did the extra steps you know no matter what so it was really more community, more close. And I remember we even did camping trips, stuff like that. I never experienced community like that before, but except that we did middle school, we did camping trips, but not like the ones we did in high school because you build more community and they had more like fun teacher one-on-one stuff. And I know earlier you mentioned that it was in high school when you started to become more aware of like immigrant issues and things like that and organizing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us more about that? Like how did that awareness come about? I always knew I was an immigrant. My mom never actually hid my status from me. She told me about being undocumented, but she didn't explain what it meant. She just said that I was undocumented. 
Well, she didn't say undocumented. She said immigrant. Uh, but I didn't know what it meant, right? I didn't know what actually it meant that I couldn't do or what could happen. So in 10th grade, I remember writing letters to President Obama and asking them for citizenship, pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Even if I didn't know what it meant, I actually just started writing letters. And I remember sharing my story as an immigrant and my whole class was doing that for their 10th grade year. I started getting more involved with one of my teachers, Ms. Cook, who was also teaching us about she was a math teacher, but she also did with social justice. And so we talked about immigration into a perspective, like how you test in the graphing, like how many people have been in the United States. And so we did our whole research about the amount of people in the United States and graphed them and did all like this portfolio binary, like with our research and where do we find our numbers and everything. We just started talking about that. And then in 11th grade, we started to talk about social justice and immigrant movements and actually about the Dream Act because that was one of the things that was happening during 2011. And so I started to learn more about the Dream Act, the immigrant youth experience. And yeah, that was something that came up a lot and researching about what could actually undocumented students do, could undocumented go into higher education. I remember trying to, I think we were going to do, three of my friends we're talking about immigration into like workshops and to doing workshops and everything and talking more about the immigrant experience. And that's where I started to figure out what were the obstacles on documenting immigrant experience and even the fear of deportation. Even though I had had a deportation order, I didn't know about it, but I did have a deportation order and I just never had that fear until I figured out what it meant. And what was the first time I guess that you remember that you heard the term undocumented or mm. illegal, right? Because I know that got thrown around a lot too. I had the experience of like illegal immigration legal wise would be in 2005 because they would say illegal alien. And I heard that term through the Border Patrol, but mm. even in the documents that they sent where I had a court order that had me as illegal alien, my alien number on it. So talking about that, I heard about it, but I didn't actually understand it. And then I think more, I started to hear the term undocumented more in 2010. I think even in 2006, I heard it through, but I was passing by a protest of immigration. And I remember taking a picture with my mom, but I was not there, like, you know, understanding why I was there, you know? But it was a big immigration movement protest. When did you become more inclined to organize? Or when was the first time you organized, if that makes sense? <laughs> so in 2011, I was trying to apply to scholarships, colleges. That year, I started to learn more about, like, I couldn't apply to some scholarships. I couldn't apply to some colleges. Like, you know, in Georgia, they don't allow undocumented immigrants to apply to the top five colleges. And so I started to learn that and started to learn about Arizona law and SB 1070. And so I started to get more and more and being like, okay, I needed to pick a senior project about a topic that I needed to do and research it for a whole year. And the topic I picked was immigration and the obstacles undocumented immigrants face while applying to higher education. So I started to do my own research I started to see what schools could be out there, what undocumented students could 
be eligible for. And I started to learn more about the movement as an immigrant. I remember I was there for the hearing of the Dream Act. I did know what the Dream Act was, but I didn't know how impactful it was, right? And it was the first time I just showed up and I remember being there and seeing thousands of people just lining up in the Senate building. And it was a long line. I remember they filled out like three rooms for that hearing. But I started to get more involved in 2012 after DACA was announced. I went to Casa de Maryland, which is an organization here in Maryland, which was where they were going to help immigrant youth apply for DACA. And I was there just to listen. And I remember hearing the stories of two youth during that time, Ricky and Claudia, and they told me about how they came here, how they immigrated. They were like really powerful speakers. And I was like, oh my God, I need to meet them. I need to join them. And I started to get involved with them in Maryland to fight for justice there because they were fighting for in-state tuition. They were fighting for question four at that time. And it was just protest after protest that I was joining and going to them. They had a co-committee of youth where they met every week or so. And they would actually meet and talk about what was going to happen with the campaign, talk about what protests were going to come. They also had fun. They would like have dancing together, having fun together. And so just that was the first time I built community and organizing together with other folks. Had you already graduated high school or were you still in high school? I had just graduated high school when I actually got into more organizing. And when was the first time that you heard or I guess read or found out about DACA? So the first time I heard about DACA was in June 14 when it was announced actually. Because I remember going that afternoon after graduation, I went to my house and my mom was watching TV and they were talking about President Obama coming out and speaking about DACA and the program. And that was the first time I heard about the program and I was excited because I knew that I was actually eligible and I was like, oh my God, this is something that could support me and actually help me out. And so I was excited to go out and go to Casa Maryland because they actually announced it after that. They were like, oh, Casa Maryland is what they're holding their information section. And I was like, oh, let me go. Did you already know at that point where you were going to school or how did that whole college application process end up? So when I was applying to college, I was scared of going out of state. So there was offers of scholarships, but I couldn't actually, I didn't want to accept them because SB 1070 was happening in Arizona and other states were picking it up and I was scared. So I didn't go out of state. That was my biggest fear and uh, you know, with my mom and I'm her only child. So I was like, okay, I'm not gonna be. And I was looking for schools that actually were local that actually accepted documents too. And one of the schools in my research that actually did was UDC. And it was a public school and they never had asked about their social security in them. So I was able to apply, get in, and I was able to get into the school. I thought I was going to pay out of pocket the whole time. But I remember the first year I got a few scholarships. My principal had given me scholarships too. And so I was able to pay my first year. But then later on, I was able to pay my school working and study. And then just going back to DACA again, can you talk a little bit about what was the process for applying for you? And yeah, when did you start? With CASA, I was getting involved with them. They were able to help me apply. They helped me fill out my DACA. 
they told me what documents I needed to do, and it was a process that was really long because you had to actually like go around. And I remember going to my middle school, elementary school, to ask them for documentations, to ask them about attendance, and gather all the documents to prove that I was here in the United States during those dates. Right? I remember even getting my medical records for everything ready, and then filling out the DACA, paying the fee, of course. And it was just a long process. I remember that me and Claudia, we were excited because we were one of the first in line to actually apply in Maryland, through Casa de Maryland. And we were actually ready to apply. And we were like, oh yeah, we're gonna fill it out. And then we go through the whole process and they're like, oh, you're missing this document, you're missing this, you're missing that. And we were like, oh my God, we both came out afterwards and we're like, oh my God, we need to get more documentation. And we were just like, ready to go and get documents, more documents, information. But then I was able to send mine. Once I got sent, I remember that I had to wait a long time to get a response. And the response was that for two months, they didn't know that I was in the United States. And it was due to the fact that I was out of school for that time. I didn't actually do any summer school during that time. The only time I don't do summer school, they get me. <laughs> and so I had to go out again and look for people who actually I talked to during the summer and get letters written and get more proof that I actually was in the United States for those two months. And so I was able to do that. And yeah, after that, I remember getting my DACA. I started to work as a soccer coach and it was just amazing. When did you apply and when did you get approved? So I, I applied around 2012. I think I got approved 2013, March or April, I think I got approved. It was around that time because I remember I had already started my soccer season and yeah, I was working there and I had to do the whole paperwork of like trying to think that I was working with my social group. And what was that like when you found out? Like- that I got that? It was exciting because, you know, people would just be like, oh, it's just an acceptance, but it's just a letter, it's just a document, right? For us, it means that it's protection from deportation. It means that you can actually be here working, opportunities to apply to other schools, apply to scholarships. It could mean more opportunities. That's what DACA means, right? And we know this, not, for me, it was during that time, I didn't know it was temporary, of course. So that's another thing. I know you mentioned also that you started coaching. So how did you end up coaching? So after graduating in my high school, I used to be really active in sports. So one of the things that I was active was with swimming and soccer. And of course, I play softball too. And I remember in soccer, the sports person, he asked me to come back in 2012 to come and coach for the elementary school there. And so I started to coach because my capital city is an elementary school, middle school, and a high school. But I only went there to high school year. So I started coaching the like third, fourth, fifth grade years. And I started to coach those grades. And that was the first time I started to coach. With DC Scores, I don't know if you know, there's a, a program here that teaches low-income families to get them to play soccer. Just to clarify, was this your first job because of DACA? Or did DACA, I guess, allow you to have that job? Or did you already have the job before? So I had my job before DACA. So the way they were going to pay me, actually, that's how I got my college first semester. They were paying me as a scholarship. Being undocumented, they couldn't pay me. They were like, we'll pay your school and you just do this. And I did. I coached soccer 
for a full semester. And then once I got that, I was able to get paid through thesis course. So did you continue to organize during all of this? Yeah, so I continued organizing. I remember I was part of with CASA for a little while until 2013, I think. So I continued being part of the movement, but I also started to like working on the projects outside. I remember I went back to my high school for like during the daytime to actually build a group, help other undocumented youth in the school to actually apply to colleges, find them scholarship opportunities because through to my senior project, I had a scholarship list of scholarship listing that they could apply to, uh, colleges they could apply to. So I went back and helped them out and give them scholarships and give them all those opportunities and guidance. And also through class, I was help, like bringing them in to talk to the youth. I remember we did this like a few workshops with them. And then once in 2013, I was part of a project called Risers, which was with other DACA recipients. It was just us telling our story of us being in the movement, fighting for justice and being part of like going downtown, fighting for citizenship, fighting for like deportation cases and stuff like that. Well, I'm glad you brought up Risers. That's actually what I meant to ask you. Mm-hmm. How did you end up getting involved in that project? I was in my sophomore year, I think. I met another DACA recipient. Her name was Aura and she got me into the project. She talked to the director and she was like, oh yeah, because he was looking for all the DACA recipients. She's like, oh, Herson is another person to come in. And that's how I started to interact and meet the director, actually here in the Columbia Heights. And we started to talk more about the project and about telling my story. I was more open anyway during that time. So before I wasn't open to share my story, but now like during that time, I started to be more open about it. Can you speak more to why before you weren't that open to discuss your story? How did you end up or begin to open up? It was kind of like, you know, I told people I was immigrant and everything, but I never actually shared my story in a way that it could inspire and tell, help other undocumented youth. I always thought I never knew what it meant to tell your story. And that was the first time I got the opportunity to tell. One, tell my story, of course, and to also understand that it could empower other youth because, you know, storytelling is a way you can empower other folks and inspire and, and people can connect to your story and understand what they're going through. It's not only themselves, right? So I think for me it was just that I didn't know I could share my story and I just hadn't had the opportunity. And I think also from my end, like my family didn't actually want to share my story. So like during that time I was filming, I could tell my story, but I couldn't tell, like things I couldn't share was from my family side. I know you mentioned you became more aware of things in high school, but more specifically, right, with the dreamers movement or even just the term dreamer, when did you start hearing more about this? So it would be around 10th grade, I think. We did hear about the dreamer narrative. And I think even during the DREAM Act, that was what they called immigrant youth dreamers, right? And I think that was the beginning when I heard it the first time. What did you know about it then? Or how did you perceive it then? And how, how do you see it now? Back then, I just knew that it was something for the DREAM Act. And it referred to undocumented youth, especially people who were 3.0 or like, 4.0 GPA, it's like, it was this narrative that was like this high performing undocumented youth. And so that was the narrative for the dreamer. 
And I think that was always something that talked about the perfect student, perfect immigrant, right? And for me, as I grew up, I did talk about being like talking about the dreamer narrative. I, at one point, I did say I was a dreamer. But as I continued growing, I understood that that was something that was not a title. It was a title that was given to me, not a title that I wanted to define myself as an identity. I am an immigrant youth, and I think the dreamer is just a way to like truly watch that kind of thing. Like it's just the just a way that I don't want to be used. Like the title, it's not something that I define myself because one, I'm. I remember I wasn't like always the high school student who would get 3.0 or 4.0, you know? I was never that, like the perfect student. And it's also like, it's used, but it's not what they mean. They usually talked about DACA recipients and immigrant youth are many. They're not just DACA recipients, they're not just dreamers. The dreamer narrative, right? It's so many out there. And when they use it that in the politicians, they use it to actually refer to the high-performing, perfect immigrant. And so I think for me, it has changed to me using the immigrant youth and using that title instead. I know you said you don't necessarily identify with that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess, how do you see it as being a detrimental term now, since it's still being used, right? It gets thrown a lot when you read articles or even in the news, you still see it a lot. Yeah, and I think we see it all the time to refer to immigrant youth who came here as a young age and they don't it has changed so many times sometimes they say dreamers and they mean DACA recipients so sometimes it's not even used properly to refer to the right terms and it's just the way that it has continued to like be this perfect student it's just that it, it excludes others and it excludes many immigrant youth that are not identifying themselves as that. I think when it's used in other articles and stuff, like it could be more like, you know, they want to talk about the Dream Act and the Dreamers and it's like, well, there's more. Like, you know, the Dream Act does not cover only Dreamers. It covers immigrant youth in general. There's more terms in general. It's not just what the old Dream Act used to do, the Dreamers area. There's a lot of many immigrant youth who are DACA recipients, GPS holders now, who are youth. And so there's immigrant youth that covers everything, I think, for me. I guess what have been some of the organizing strategies that you've seen to kind of combat that or to change how immigrants or even immigrant youth are being portrayed? I think in a way we started to talk, like even in the movement, we started to say immigrant youth, not dreamers. I think even for DACA recipients, yes, they define themselves as DACA recipients, but they also say immigrant youth. And it has changed narrative. You see some articles, immigrant youth, take over this, immigrant youth, do this. So the language has changed in a way. But I think sometimes it's still being used still in schools. And I think having workshops and having, like even in my school, I remember having a workshop with youth in my club and talking about the Dreamers, DACA, and TPS, and undocumented youth and defining it. So the school knows, like the teachers, the staff, the students know what it means. During that time, we were used learning about that and immigration, right? So I think it has been just educating again 
uneducated what the term means. So it's been a whole workshop and everything like that. One of the things that we also notice is that the movement itself did kind of present this opportunity for a lot of people to feel empowered through sharing their stories. So I just wanted to find out a little bit more about if you've seen any examples of how the people themselves, not necessarily organizers could be too, but just people themselves have taken back the narrative of how they want to be seen, of how you know they want to be talked about, or what needs to be talked about, I guess. So even with youth that are not DACA recipients, they usually define themselves as immigrant youth or undocumented immigrant because they know they're not DACA recipients or they don't define themselves as dreamers because they usually, when they talk about it in the media, they think about DACA recipients. So them themselves, when they identify, they're like undocumented immigrant or undocumented immigrant youth. So you could see it in the media and more people started, like when they get interviewed, they say those things. Even in bills, they have started to write immigrant youth instead. Thinking about that, in schools, some schools started to talk about immigration through just undocumented students instead of just say dreamers, right? So even that has changed because, you know, when DACA came out, they connected the term dreamers to it. So that actually, like most of the DACA recipients are graduating high school, graduating college. They're already out of the school system. So a lot of schools are starting to see that there's not just DACA recipients, there's undocumented youth and immigrant youth in general. So that has been changed too. And speaking of, I guess, defining you know these terms, since you were involved in, in the Risers short film, can you define Risers for us? Like what was the intent behind labeling the film with Risers? So during that time, I remember the director wanted to think about changing the narrative in Dreamers, right? And one of the things that he was thinking about was to, instead of actually use the term Dreamers, instead use the word Risers as being awakened, being woke, and actually fighting for the movement. That you're not actually just dreaming now, you're actually standing up and fighting. And so that's what it was, the new definition of Risers. And so that was where our goal was, but it didn't pick up the momentum and also like, you know, the film was just a local thing too. And then just going back to your experience going through college, what have you done since then? So throughout my high school and my college years, I continued being involved in the school too. So like changing things in the school, being the organizer inside the school too, like talking to the president, talking to staff members about being undocumented. And so I continued doing that. And I graduated with computer science. I also created clubs in there. And then afterward, during that time, I started to work for United with Dream 2. So I was recruited again by my friend and colleague, Claudia. And I was brought to United with Dream because they were creating a, a hub here in DC. So they were gonna create like a, a media group of youth they could actually meet. So they could actually like create a space where immigrant youth could feel welcome and actually be themselves and feel empowered too. So I was part of that with them and it was just a new experience for me to just be part of it. And then I got hired with them. After graduation, I continued organizing with them. But I graduated with computer science, but I haven't actually been through my major. And I'm now thinking about going to master's degree and thinking about that. 
And can you tell us a little bit more about that experience with United We Dream? What was it like creating this new hub for Android? It was different because they created like a leadership group. I remember the first time we met up and it was all these immigrant youth from like D.C., Maryland, Virginia. And it was just youth who were here together talking about their experience or people who wanted to fight for justice for immigrants. And it was just learning about how to empower yourself, how to share your story to actually bring awareness to an issue because it was like a way to tell your story. And so that was workshop. And you learn about other organizing opportunities about like how the civil rights fought for the farm movement and all of that. You learned it and everything. So you learn how to actually organize yourself. And so it was just youth organizing together. It was a lot of spaces where like even undocumented immigrants for the first time came out in a space saying they were undocumented. So, you know, you got all those experiences plus the folks who already were actually themselves. They were like, oh yeah, I'm undocumented. They were really open about it, but you had those folks different. And is this something that has continued like now with your current involvement or um, what is going on now? So we continue meeting throughout the years. We have done what's called Summer of Dreams, which is a program. And we continue doing a lot of meetings, working together, different youth. We actually have different schools that we work with. And it's just amazing. And can you speak a little bit more about what are like, some of the current goals or some of the ongoing campaigns at the moment? So United with Dream has many campaigns. One of them is Defund ICE and CBP which is to actually defund the money that goes into ICE and CBP because that, you know, those agencies terrorize our communities. So those are some campaigns that we have nationally. We're also working on Pathway to Citizenship. We're always working on those different campaigns to get those. One of them is the reconciliation right now. And then locally, we had just passed a bill in the DC area, which was the Century Values Act, which stops any agency from working with ICE. Throughout the times, we knew that the term Century City was named as DC, but we didn't know that like the Department of Correction used to work with ICE. So, you know, people were turned over to ICE. And so even though it was called Century City, that was still happening. So that was a campaign that started called ICE out of DC, which was a coalition. And I worked with different schools here in the area. That's great. And I guess one of my last questions is more general, like what are your hopes for the future? I just hope that we have a way we can actually have everyone be able to travel in the world without actually thinking about documentations, papers, be free to move and free to actually travel around without any problem, without any fear. I hope that we can actually live it like all undocumented youth actually not be fearful of being deported or fearful of those agencies and hope that I could actually continue my education here and continue to get help back to my community of course because I want to help back in with the next generation. Thank you Hersen for sharing your story with us. Join us next week where we'll speak with Brenda Valeria Perez Amador a local D.C. community organizer who currently works as a grants manager at the Department of Energy and Environment in the Office of Urban Agriculture. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms at Hola Cultura DC and subscribe to the podcast to always be the first to know when new weekly episodes are published. 
As an added bonus, if you subscribe and follow Hola Cultura social channels and share your own immigration experience with us, you'll get a chance to be featured on the Hola Cultura Instagram page.